Today, we're at a no excuse point. Right. Every business leader uh, under the sound of our voice with control of resources in a company could have one intern, could create one spot, mm-hmm. could mentor one person. Mm-hmm. If we change the life of one person, mm-hmm. we will eventually change the life of our entire community. Hello and welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council. From deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. Today we're sharing some of the very best insights and stories from Season 3 of our Legends of Commercial Real Estate series, which Cauley Partners CEO Bill Cauley hosts for us. You'll hear from the Perot Group Chairman Ross Perot Jr., Hunt Consolidated Inc. Executive Chairman Ray Hunt, and the Beck Group CEO Fred Perpal. So there's certainly a lot of great takeaways and wisdom ahead. You can listen to each of these conversations in their entirety through this podcast or watch them on our YouTube channel. We'll link to them for you in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and follow Trek on social media for the latest from around the organization. We've also launched our 2023 Trek Membership Survey, and we're requesting your feedback to help shape our organization in ways that will benefit you, your fellow members, and Dallas's commercial real estate industry for years to come. The survey should take you no longer than 15 minutes to complete, and participants will be entered to win their choice of either a ticket to this year's fight night or a 2024 Trek Membership. If you're interested in taking the survey, again, check out that link in the show notes. Before we get started, I'd also like to recognize and thank the Dallas Business Journal for sponsoring our Legends of Commercial Real Estate podcast series. Visit bizjournals.com backslash Dallas for exclusive reporting on the hottest business topics in North Texas and get breaking news alerts and insights from Business Journal's vast network of national publications. And for more interviews with DFW's top business leaders and personalities, subscribe to the Texas Business Minds podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. We'll begin with the best of Ross Perot Jr., a legend of commercial real estate, right here on TrackCast. I I moved to Dallas in 82 from the Midwest. And EDS was moving north. Sure. And your dad and we're, uh, put Legacy together. I remember we working with Marilyn Casco, if you remember sure. Marilyn Casco. Mm-hmm. And John Yeaman. Oh, and, sure. I mean, some names from the past. But what was the vision? Like, I mean, I know, I mean, why did he put EDS there? Was all, sure. was the land... Was it a land play? Did he well, think it would be what it is today? What was his? Oh no, no, it, 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 it's it's a really good story. I and, would love. I mean, and so so we were building. You remember the original EDS headquarters on yes. Forest Lane? Yes, and that was an old bankrupt golf course. Yes, and we bought the bank golf course out of bankruptcy. And so I'm in high, I'm in middle school, high school. So every weekend, I'm with my dad reviewing construction of the EDS buildings at Forest Lane. And we're, we're built, we built a data center. We built a seven-story administrative building. Right. And I'm walking that building with Dad. And I said, Dad, are we ever going to fill it up? He goes, Ross, I don't know. You know I hope so. 
He said, we're growing. I said, well, how many floors do we need right now? He goes, well, we need three, and I built four extra, and I hope we can fill it up. Well, EDS was growing so quickly, we had, the, we had it full before we opened. So Dad goes to City Hall and said, I need more zoning. And Dad, him, so he was trying to get more zoning, and the city council wouldn't give him zoning because the neighbors were complaining. And he went to City Hall himself. He said, look, you know, if you don't give me more zoning, I've got to keep growing. I'm going to have to leave. And the neighbors didn't want any more EDS traffic. And they said that the data centers hurt their TV reception. There's no way that's right. Because it was over the air. <laughs> this, this is, we had three, Bill, we had three channels. <laughs> it was all over the air. NBC, NBC, CBS. So, right. so dad, dad literally, the city council goes, look, he said, we're not going to hurt TV reception. <laughs> Bring your television into the data center and watch television. <laughs> funny. You know, dad said, look, we need to do it. Well, the city council didn't give him the zoning. I mean, so the reason you have legacy today is Dallas turned down the zoning. Okay, and when so then he, there, so then he went. To, so we we started buying land in Plano, right? And Tom Luce was our attorney, right? And Tom did the zoning case, right? And Tom kept coming back to Dad saying, "Here's the zoning I have. Is that enough?" Dad goes, "No, I need more zoning." And finally, Tom goes, "Ross, how much zoning? I mean, what 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 am I supposed to do?" He said, "Look, I want as much zoning as downtown Dallas." And Tom said, okay. And he had basically enough, he, he matched downtown Dallas up in Plano and Legacy. And Legacy today is like 100,000 feet below downtown Dallas. So dad's vision was a new downtown, downtown Plano. And the reason we went out there, number one, Dallas wouldn't let us grow. Right. But number two is he wanted, he wanted to be as close to the engineering talent as he could be. And he wanted the engineers to have a five and 10 minute commute. And he told all the executives, he said, look, if you Drive. guys live in Highland Park, that's fine. Drive. But these engineers are a lot more important to me than you guys are. That's kind of what he <laughs> said. He goes, I wanted talent. And so he went up there because of that great high tech workforce. Yeah. And you had the spouses. So you had, you, had, you had unbelievable talent. And that's why he started the technology, really that technology revolution for Plano when EDS went up. So Dallas didn't approve the zoning. And dad had the vision for a new downtown, and that's why you have got legacy. But as I tell chamber groups, and I tell, as I mentioned, talk to cities around the country, the first thing a mayor should always focus on, keep your existing clients. It's always fun to chase the new company coming in. Totally. But 80% of your growth is going to come from your existing clients. And so when you've got a company like EDS, leading edge, high tech, that wants to grow in your city, and they say no. It's crazy. That's a huge strategic mistake for Dallas. Yeah. And you know the mayor should have said, hey, Ross, we're going to figure something out. Right. We really want you, but they kind of dropped the ball. Well, and that, so that, that's why we went to Plano, and that's why you have legacy. That neighborhood actually undid several projects that could have gone on that site over the last 10 or 15 years. That's right. And I think now it's finally going to be residential. I think Leanne Back has bought it. Yeah. But my point is, is that there were many, many good uses for the city that that they they I think they should have allowed that they haven't. You could have worked it out, right? But that's right. That's, that's why you have a legacy. Okay. So when I first came to Dallas, mm -hmm. uh, I worked for the Robert Bass family. Sure. I worked for the land company under uh, uh, Tom Prouty was the mm -hmm. guy's name. And it's when you all were buying the Alliance Airport Lane. Right. Because we were um, 
and I remember watching and and from afar as you were putting this together. So, and was was Alliance your idea? It was your idea, correct? Well, it really. It was the FAA idea. Okay, so but they they were going to build four new airports, and because of legacy, we had a reputation for doing public private partnerships, uh, and we did the one twenty one bypass at right, legacy. Right, and we it was kind of new, yeah. and we had a team, and we yeah. helped donate land, and yeah. so the council government saw our willingness to help the public sector. We had 2,500 acres in North Fort Worth. So you already had the land. We own the land. And the Council of Governments brought in the FAA, uh, FAA administrator, the man that ran the Fort Worth office, Gene Faulkner. And they came to see us. They said, look, we need to build a new airport. Would you donate land for the airport and help us? And I was an Air Force pilot at the time out of Carswell, out of Fort Worth. So I'm a pilot. I'm in the real estate business. Yeah. Do you remember Dale Hill? Yes. So I'm buying and selling land with Dale Hill like 80, 81. As soon as I'm out of college, I'm trading land with Dale Hill, and Dale Hill taught me the land business. And I really thought I was just going to be a land guy. Back to land. Uh, I learned it early from the best in Dale Hill. Right. And so we had 2,500 acres, and I was a pilot, and the FA wanted to do an airport, and I thought it was a really creative idea. Did your dad agree? He didn't. He uh, he, (laughs) – but but dad – I'm, I'm, my father and I had a, have had an unbelievable relationship. Yeah. And my father was great because it was like, okay, if I wanted to do it, he let me do it. Yeah. I That's said, Dad, we'll do this airport. He goes, hey, so he said, why do you want an airport? Airports want noise. No one wants to be around an airport. He goes, that, that's not a good real estate use. Right. And I said, look, I, I think this is one that could, that could really work. And we, right. we thought it would be an airport with factories. And, and little did we know, no one ever heard of the internet. No one heard of Amazon. No one's heard of Facebook. I mean, all of the big clients at Alliance today, no one even heard of. So it, it was it's an airport with a lot of the new high technology companies around it. So when American went there and uh, they put their facility there, it was early on, right? Heavy maintenance was, space. Wasn't yep. that a big deal at the time? Huge. It gave you credibility. You, Not that you didn't need credibility. Well, but, but the airport wasn't even open. Right. I mean, Bob Crandall right. moved to Alliance without a runway being completed. And and it took a huge amount of effort between Gib Lewis and Governor Clements right. and Tom Luce to knit all that together in order to make it happen. But that really, it was a half a billion dollar investment in December of 89, or, just, or summer of 89, that gave us the credibility. Right. And but what? Bill, the very first deal we did though at the Alliance Airport was our... Inter, our, our auto distribution center for Santa Fe Railroad. Right. So we, all that attention about building an airport, the first thing we announce is a railroad deal. <laughs> but what's the most important part of Alliance today? It's being Santa Fe. It's, totally that, it, it's that intermodal yard. Right. And we're doing over a million lifts a year in that yard, and they're going to two and a half million. But the, the amount of freight coming through that airport today is staggering. That's why... It's becoming one of the most active industrial hubs in the nation is because of the Santa Fe. So can you move freight on a on a train cheaper than you can on a truck or a, oh, oh or fractions. A, much it is cheaper, so much think. cheaper. Yeah. The intermodal play is cheaper and far better environmentally than long haul trucking. That's why you want the train to bring it into the region and the trucks can deliver through the region. Okay, so people have told me about you telling the story about your trip around the world. Right. Okay, so now 
I heard, and I don't know if this is accurate, that you were sitting around and you heard someone was going to go do it. And you said, well, why don't we do it? Is it that simple? I mean, what, it, what it, it, that? it was almost that simple. So I was reading the Dallas Morning News, <laughs> August 1st of 1982. I love this. Okay, how old were you then? A 23. All right, cool. 23, reading the paper. And I'm, I'm in the real estate business. I'm in the oil business. Right. And, you know, back then, the old days, you know, I, I go to work and there's a slip. Remember those? You used to get slips of paper on your desk. Yes. You know, little pink yeah, slips. Pink yeah. slips. I got a yeah. pink slip, call your dad. And we were in different buildings. I call him up. And he said, he said, you read the paper? I said, yes, sir. He said, do you read about that pilot? I said, yeah. He goes, what do you think? Because Dick Smith was going to be the first man to fly a helicopter around the world. That's what I saw on the paper. He goes, what do you think? I said, I said, Dan, we need to go beat him. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm a helicopter pilot. It's awesome. And, and I'd already been, I mean, I'd already gone to the Arctic Circle and back, and I was yeah. flying. And yeah. so I'm single. Single helps on these things. Yes. You don't have to get permission. And, and I just started dating my wife at that time. And I think when I told my future father-in-law what I was doing, it was like Darwin at work. This is gonna, it'll flush this guy out and get him out of here. Uh, but from, but it, but from it, that but conversation, so, so, how much so time? August first, we decided to do it. Took off September first. Thirty days. Are you kidding? We put the whole team together in thirty days. We were completed. So August, August first, end of September, sixty days, beginning to end. And, okay. and so as I tell the story. Two-thirds of the trip was the ground team. I mean, we had incredible people all over the world that had to get permission for us to land in these different countries. And it, it was, I mean, we were extraordinarily blessed. In areas of the world we should have had bad weather, we had good weather. I mean, it was a fluke we could get around the world in 30 days like we did. And how but, close were you ahead of it? I mean, on the time frame, I mean, did you? Oh, it, our goal was to get around the world in 30 days. And you did. And no one thought we could do it. Now, my wife... Then girlfriend, she believed in us. Right. And so as I took off from Love Field, she gave me 30 cards. She said, open a card each day and you'll be home. How cool is that? It's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Really, really dear. So we thought of the trip because of Dick Smith. And then we executed and we passed Dick Smith in the first week of the trip. And so we were, we were the first to go around the world in a helicopter. Were you by yourself in the helicopter? No, no, Jay Coburn. Okay. Jay and I did it together, and Jay still works here at Hillwood. And so we're having our 40th anniversary Would dinner. One guy sleep while the other one's flying, or I mean, no, we'd be awake, but you do you do 12, 14 hours a day, and then the helicopter had an, had an 800 mile range, so two legs a day, and we'd land, and we'd have a ground team meet us. So you'd hand the helicopter off to mechanics. Somebody'd have a room for us. We'd go in and sleep. They'd have the meals ready. And then we'd go back to the helicopter, do the planning, and take off. Wow. But the ground team was critical. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, what'd you learn doing that? Well, I learned to have big ideas. And no my father loves big ideas. Yeah. And I love spontaneity. And, and, and it's important. My father loved to have young people around him because he wanted youth. I said, why do you want all these young people around? Because he goes, Ross, you don't know any better. He said, if you get surrounded by a bunch of old guys, if they've got too much experience, you know, they don't, they don't have the vision and the passion. You've got to get these wild ideas. Totally so my agree. father always wanted young people with crazy ideas. And I'd tell people, if you're going to go see my dad, you better not talk to him about a basic deal. Right. 
If you go in and say, look, this is a deal and the internal rate of return is 20% and there's a return on capital, he'd say, okay, great, you know, y'all go See do it. that. But right. if, if it was big, yeah. then he'd get engaged. Yeah. And so it was that big, impactful idea is what I learned. And so when you go around the world, when you think about building an airport, it's like, oh, yeah, we, we can do that. You know, in, in, our, in our, our culture is one of optimism. Right. And we really do believe that if you rally the right team, we can get these very difficult projects done. No one thought we could get the American Airlines Center done. No. Everyone said the citizens of Dallas will never vote for that project. Remember how negative yes. it was? Yes. We lost the Cowboys. We yes. lost the Rangers. Yes. But it's like, you know, Ron Kirk. Yes. If it wasn't for Ron Kirk, Ron was a stud. that arena wouldn't be there. It totally was Ron agree. Kirk and John Ware. Yep. Those two got that arena done in Dallas, but out of 125,000 votes, we just won by 1,642. I mean, so you look at Victory Today, you look at that whole project, you know, 1,642 votes, less than 1%, little over 1% of the vote allowed that project to happen. If we didn't have that vote, the American Airlines Center would be in Arlington. Well, look what, yeah, it's been such a boon to the city. Too. It's I huge. Mean, it's just unbelievable. It, but, but remember, Don Carter had a vote in Louisville two years prior. Yes. He had landed a contract. And if the citizens of Louisville, Texas had voted for that arena, you'd be watching basketball in Louisville. I, that would be horrible. No, but this is where, I mean, Bill, it's like, can you imagine how different our city would be? Yeah. But this is, I go, it goes back to this public-private partnership, the positive attitude we have here. And then we've got these great public leaders. So you've got a Ron Kirk and you had a John Ware and you had a Bob Bowling. Yeah, people who did up. who did Alliance in Fort Worth. And oh yeah, Eric Johnson. We've got yep. these great young leaders in this city that really have the vision for the city. Right. Okay, so I'm gonna divert again. Bering Sea refueling. I've heard this. Oh, you want to go back to the helicopter? Yes. Was that with the helicopter? The bearings? Okay. Yeah. I didn't know. I yeah, was no, that it. was off the coast. That's off the coast of Russia. So were you, tell me what happened. Something must have happened there. Well, we were, first of all, we asked the Russians to let us in. And the Russians said, no, you can't come in. We couldn't land in Russia. We didn't want to land. So the only way to go from northern Japan to the tip of the Aleutian Islands, Shimia, was you had to land at sea. And so we went to American President Lines. They had a container run that went San Francisco to Tokyo. And we said, look, can we put a helipad on the bow and land and refuel on your container ship? And they said, well, yeah, you can do that. So we had to put a helipad on the bow. We put jet fuel on the container ship. We taught the crew how to refuel the helicopter, but then neither Jay nor I had ever landed on a ship before. Right. And so... We had to get a, we got a retired Coast Guard pilot to ride on the ship to teach the cat, because the captain had never landed. Right. He'd never done at sea landings. Right. So he had all these rookies and one veteran. And when we took off, we were in the, we were at the edge of Typhoon Kim. And so we should have had a headwind, but we had a tailwind. And when we found that ship, we had like a 50-foot sea and a 40-knot wind. So it wasn't perfect. <laughs> and, we had, and we had only about 20 minutes of fuel left. So there, the motivation was very good to get on that ship. That's, that's the only option we had. And we came in and we landed, really very hard landing, but we're so light we didn't do any permanent damage. And so they refueled it. But the ship, we, 
the ship was so rough we couldn't take on a fuel, a full fuel tank, full load of fuel. And so from the ship to Shimia, I was running the fuel calculations. We were going to miss the island by about an hour. And then literally we had a headwind and about three hours out, the wind died and we made it. So you Again, made, it just it just the Lord took care of us, Bill. Right, that's and that's not how you, that's not how you want to be a professional pilot. Right. But it was just pure good fortune wow. that we made it in. Market Matters returns Thursday, August twenty fourth, with a panel discussion on navigating the lending environment. Join us at Arts District Mansion as Darcy Barnes of Bank of America, Tom Burns of Affinius Capital, and Paul Geyer of PGIM Real Estate Finance discuss what lies ahead for real estate financing. Special thanks to Grant Thornton, Global Pro, and DCEO for their sponsorship and support of Market Matters. Get your tickets now at recouncil.com backslash upcoming dash events. That's recouncil.com backslash upcoming dash events. Now, here's the best of Ray Hunt. Okay, um, philosophy on leadership, specific values. I've got the five, five ten, uh, points of a successful company, and I'm going to get into that. But like, it, it seems to me like yours is all about respecting people and treating them right. But Give me your general view on on leadership and and running a business. Um, well, there are a couple of questions there, so yeah. let me break them down. I want I, I once heard a lecture on leadership. It is the single best lecture on leadership I've ever heard. In fact, I will say I've not really heard a great lecture on leadership mm -hmm. before, other than this one. And the speaker who spoke for an hour. He, uh, he said, okay, there are three kinds of leadership. And I really believe this. And he was up on an elevated stage, maybe 100 people in the audience. And uh, he figuratively said, okay, imagine I've got a marker board behind me. And he you know, outlined a, a rectangle. He said, now, lower right-hand corner, drew a circle. And he actually, I think he had a marker board behind him. It drew a circle, put an A beside the circle. This is one kind of leadership. It's called authority. You're the general in the army. You say, face right, everybody faces right. Mm -hmm. Then you, you went over to the center of the marker board, in the middle up, to another circle, put an eye behind it. Influence. You have no authority, but you have the ability to explain what you think other people should do and cause them to do what you think, what you want them to do. Example, Martin Luther King. Right. There's a third kind of leadership. He went over to the other side of the marker board and drew a circle and drew a big E behind it, beside it. He said, that's X, that's example. Big E uh, example. And he cited an example out of a, a World War II movie. The Allied troops need to take a hill in order to get to the bridge on the other side of the hill to blow it up, to keep the German tanks from coming in. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's, there's a problem. There's a German machine gun nest at the top of the hill. And the machine gun nest has, has kept 200 Allied troops 
inner trench at the bottom of the hill. I can't get over the hill. And I've been there for two days. Then, this is an example, it's, it's dusk. You can still see, but you can't see real well. All of a sudden, one of the 200 soldiers jumps out of the trench, doesn't say one word. It's dusk. You can't tell whether that's a private or you can't tell what the rank is. And the one soldier starts running up the hill toward the machine gun nest. And within two seconds or five seconds, 199 other soldiers jump out of the... Follow them. They follow them and they take the nest. They go over, blow up the ridge, the wall, you know. Uh, that's a great example. It is. It, it is. is. And, and now the best leader is take each of those circles, authority, you got the authority, influence, you can articulate why, and you walk the talk. And those circles are right on top of each other. That's a great answer. That's awesome. Uh, how do you protect corporate culture? How do you keep it? Um, for some reason, I had a long airplane flight a number of years ago, and I started thinking about what are the five, part of the characteristics exactly. that separate a truly great company from one that just is merely good, and I ended up with five. And the the first and most important by by far was corporate culture. Right. So, what is corporate culture? Uh, corporate culture, to me, is, corporate culture is a set of shared values and a shared work ethic. Shared values and a shared work ethic. Um, and I also believe that if you uh, have a sufficiently large number of people with the same shared values mm -hmm. and the same work ethic, that um, the laws of physics come to play. I, I was terrible in physics in high school. I remember only one thing, and that is that mass attracts mass. And I think that applies to people. And if you have a critical mass of people with shared values and a shared work ethic, they will attract other people with similar values and a similar work ethic. So do you think if one gets in that doesn't have similar values or worth ethic, work ethic, they may pick it up because they're in the middle of all those people? I would hope that'd be the case, but more likely it's the opposite. Yeah. Uh, that they will, they, they will conclude that they really are not comfortable so it's, and, it's like and, kind, like minded people out. want to be around each other. Exactly. I totally agree with that. And the way you protected uh, uh, two things. One, you, you you talk about it. You say the corporate culture is the most important characteristic of any successful company. And then you've got to walk the talk. Yeah. And uh, but but talking about it is really important because telling everybody that. In our company, we have a culture committee, uh, and it's uh, one third, about it's about fourteen people, uh, fifteen, and uh, one third change each year, mm -hmm. and it'll range from uh, the newest person or somebody maybe yeah. been with the company for four to six months to somebody who's been with the company for. 25 years. That's smart. And, so you got a, uh, a blend of yeah, people. Right. And, and very care. And it has no line authority, no line authority at all. But we will meet, we'll meet for two hours over lunch and we'll just talk about things that are happening. You know, 
how does this feel? What do you right? And it's it's an excellent and just the fact that you have a culture committee yeah shows people you care makes a statement. I totally agree to everybody else. Because like for me, because uh, I, I read all this before I came in here today, and I was thinking about there's been several times as I've been building my company where I didn't feel good about the culture. And the more I thought about it while I was preparing for this, is it was probably more driven by me than the people because I've evolved into a better leader and person than I was when I was in my 20s and 30s. And it was kind of a, uh, a little bit of a rude awakening for me to kind of just face that because there was a time, like I feel like our culture is really solid now because people, it's about letting people know you love them and care about them, right? And that they matter. Yes. And they're just not a number, which I, which I, it, it just runs over you in everything you say. It's about treating people right. And okay, so like a, ability to differentiate. Everybody's trying to cut themselves out from the pack, right? Tell me about that. Well, there were five um, yeah. uh, characteristics: corporate culture, far and away, uh, number one. Second is differentiation. Uh, if I'm in the pizza business, yeah, I need to differentiate my pizza from the person next door because I need to convince you that you should pay $5 more for my pizza because totally my pizza is different. Right. If you can't differentiate yourself, then you're average. Yeah, uh, you're if you're average, the best you know for. Third is uh, the uh, ability to adapt to changing circumstances. Darwin had it right. The uh, species that survives is the one that adapts the best. It's not the strongest, the fastest, the most intelligent, or anything else. It's the one that adapts to changing circumstances the best. And, you know, if there's one thing that is a constant in life, it is that the rate of change is so fast is continuing to increase. Well, COVID, right? Adaptability in exactly. COVID was right. huge. And that takes you to the fourth, which I refer to as agility. Because if you, things change and you can figure out what the exact proper adjustments uh, are that need to be made, uh, that's great. But if it takes you 10 years to make the adjustments, you might as well have never had the idea. So I got to tell you, one of the things that drives me crazy, because I think time is risk. I do. I do. I, I really like can happen, right? And especially in, in today's world, anything yes. can happen in time. And when I get into some uh, situation where people aren't agile, they're not focused on time, you know, they just think it's going to be like this forever. And I just think the world moves quick. And I think you have to be agile. So I totally agree. I agree a thousand percent. We refer to it internally as event risk. Once totally. we decide we want to do something, heard that we are going to do something, go do it. Then <laughs> do it as quickly. We're totally as possible totally so that something so that you avoid uh, a situation where something that was not foreseeable mm -hmm. happens that causes you not to be able to do what you're and there have been several really significant things um, in my career where I basically once we decide to do something I sort of created a deadline that really didn't exist. But, and and had I not, things would have changed. Right. And those things would not have happened. Totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Okay, and now like contrarian. That's okay. my big one. I love that. Um, I believe that the contrarian, this is the fifth of the five, will be rewarded much more in the future than ever in the past. 
And the reason is that uh, it, it really comes down to modern communication. It is so much easier today than in the past to um, convey uh, an opinion or a prediction or yeah. whatever and build a consensus opinion. And once you have a consensus opinion that's out there that's been built, people will start making decisions to take into account what the consensus opinion is and, and they'll, yeah. they'll compromise. So if you live in North Dallas and the consensus opinion becomes that the world's greatest uh, traffic jam is going to occur on North Central Expressway, mm -hmm. guess what? Everybody else, and, it, and it's a consensus opinion, everybody's going to say, I'll figure out some way to get home if you live in the North, um, other than North Central Expressway. Right. Because, well, if everybody figures out some other way to go, how should I go home? North, North Central, Central Expressway. Totally. There's not going to be anybody else there. Right. But don't you also think that, that having conviction, if you're going in a different direction, because I, I find the herd is usually wrong. I do. I agree. I mean, if everybody's running north, I'm thinking, I'm looking south going, what's down here? Because the herd, everybody follows. Yep. But it takes confidence and conviction to be different, to be contrarian. Um, there are a couple of elements there. Um, I agree, Bill, completely. Okay. Uh, when we're talking to other people trying to describe our company, we we will affirmatively say if we see an elephant stampede going in a particular direction, yep. you will not see us in the elephant stampede. Right. Uh, conversely, and you, if you're the first elephant, you may do okay. Right. Second one may do totally may survive, agree. but everybody else gets killed. Totally. Uh, alternatively, once we recognize an elephant stampede, we will consciously look the opposite way. And we'll say, can you make a case for doing the opposite of what everybody else is doing? Now, a lot of times you can't. Right. And then you don't do it. But sometimes you say, well, gee whiz, you know, I understand why the elephants are going there, but guess what they're leaving behind here? Right. And uh, so the objective is to go where other people aren't you know, get involved, make your investment, do whatever it is yeah. you do. And then hopefully in several years, the elephant stampede is coming around where you've been for several years. Right. I, I've always found that the people in an area where people are most comfortable in real estate, now I'm thinking real estate, where everybody's rushing this way is when there's the most risk because everybody's pricing it up and everybody's going that way. And when everybody's the most fearful, like times of, of uncertainty, is the best time to be bold okay. if, if you find opportunity. Now, you have to layer on top of that risk management. Right. Um, people look at some of the things that we've done and will ascribe to the decision as being very high risk. If you really examine it, they weren't high risk. Uh, right. And uh, it, that's... Uh, if in the oil and gas business, and there are a lot of similarities between oil and gas and real estate. Um, but simplistically, if you're ex drilling exploratory wells in oil and gas, simplistically they say one out of 
10 wells will be successful, nine will not. So you need to make sure that you've done enough where you drill enough wells where the law of large numbers will work for you. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, but then you, you know on January 1 of any given year, if, if you're true to that model, you're going to drill nine dry holes. You just don't know which dry holes, which, right, which one's going to be dry. But the one that um, uh, is successful needs to pay for itself it needs to pay for all the development costs of the field that it discovered and it's got to pay for all of the nine dry holes exactly and then it's got to return a profit above that right and and with technology today and energy is it still that kind of odds i mean can you actually go drill if you drill 10 it's still nine whiffs um is it getting better with technology it depends on the kind of kind of well you're drilling if uh, the shale plays, which is the horizontal yeah. drilling. Yeah. Um, the, the one in ten would not apply. Got it. Um, now, if you're trying to discover a new area yeah. uh, for horizontal drilling, right. then it would. Yeah. Okay. All right. So one other thing I've, I've read about is putting quality people in areas where they don't have experience. So I've always been um, a believer in letting somebody go lean into what they're really good at. Right. And I kind of think that's what you're doing, but you just let them go skin something different than what they're used to skinning. But I would love to hear that theory because that is something I don't think I would have done until I started thinking about this. You know, I wish, I wish I could say that this was something that, uh, I really thought through and had this burning bush, yeah. Uh, and that's wrong. <laughs> uh, but one day, again, probably a long airplane flight, I started thinking about some of the things that had really worked out well for us. And, uh, and, and who were the people that we said, okay, you're the person that we're going to look to to lead this effort. And in virtually every case, the person on paper was not qualified. If you looked solely at the paper, which goes back to the importance of creating an environment that attracts really good people. Mm -hmm. um, if you ask somebody to do something they haven't done before, but your your gut tells you, you know, yeah. I've seen them do this and do it well. I know what their work ethic is. I know what their values are. Part of, you know, it gets into communication, all this kind of stuff. Um, and then if, if it's, uh, if a person's doing something they haven't done before, you don't just give them the responsibility and walk off. You, you, you make sure that you're there, you're, you're observing, um, you're helping when asked. Uh, if you see a mistake about to be made, you say, we need to have a conversation. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and you're always going to make mistakes. And so the question is, how quickly can you identify them and correct them? So, but your theory then is, is that quality person, yes. or person that that quality person in a in a solid culture is going to figure it out because you know he's a good horse. He's gonna he's gonna get it done. He or I, she. My favorite example um, was the reunion project. Yeah. Um, um, I think I was thirty years old. Something like, I was in my twenties when we uh, purchased the property. I've seen the pictures. <laughs> not, <laughs> not very pretty. Uh, but uh, John Scoville, uh, mm -hmm. who I'd gotten to know because uh, 
we were in the same fraternity, different universities, but they would have a alum active football game. <laughs> so that's how you met him? Yeah. That's uh, awesome. I, I was a senator and he was quarterback. He was, yeah. he, but he was the quarterback and team captain at Texas Tech. And, you know, all I was, <laughs> I played center in high school. I wasn't very good at that, and uh, and, and and the actives beat us because John Scoville threw the ball so hard that nobody could catch it. <laughs> That's funny, but uh, when he uh, so we got together and and, and uh, he create he was the first person uh, that uh, I hired, um, and we created Woodbine, and um, the first project ended up being Wood. wood ended up being reunion, um, his real estate credentials. He had gone to Harvard and gotten an accounting degree. So he knew nothing about real he estate. He got an MBA. Oh, yes, he did. Yeah. He, he, he had an MBA in accounting from Harvard, came back to Dallas, native of Dallas, went to work for uh, one of the big eight, and big eight now, big four accounting firms. Yeah. Um, and he uh, was on the internal audit team for Trammell Crow. That was his exposure to real estate. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew what kind of guy he was. Right. Uh, a smart, hardworking, really focused on details. Uh, and everything that John Scoville did in real estate, uh, he, Woodmine just did things differently yeah. than... Yes. And, and do you still feel that way? I mean, if you find somebody that you have a lot of faith in that, you know, has got that that right ilk or the right person, you still go put them in something they've never done because you think you have faith they'll figure it out. Uh, no, it's probably the, it's probably not. A, I don't uh, get up in the morning and look at the people who I think are really great people and say, you know, who. Can yeah. I, but if there is something that is important and. Uh, we need to structure it because yeah. something that be, was a gleam in the eye looks like something that could actually happen. Yeah. Uh, and we need to have a leader and a structure. Uh, I will look at you know who are the possible people to lead. And if the person who I think really has those characteristics doesn't have the experience on paper, don't hesitate for a moment. That's awesome. Now, you need to make sure that there's surrounded by other people right and a bunch of things like that um i've read about your yemen discovery and um how it was sourced so now i think it's something where i'd love to hear the story because it's something about um you did something right that that allowed this all to happen but i'd love to hear the story <laughs> which what you've heard probably is not accurate okay <laughs> um I'm trying to figure out how to make this a short response. Uh, the we had participated in a discovery of a what ended up being a um, modestly successful uh, uh, offshore oil field off off of the uh, Scottish coast. It should have been a much more successful case, but it became a jobs program for Scotland. So the cost went. Anyway, it caused us to have an office in London. We had one person and an assistant in that office. That person was a Scot. He had many years earlier worked for Conoco, and Conoco, at 
the time he was there, and this condition lasted for about three years, they had about 15 or 20 world-class explorationists with different disciplines. Uh, Conoco messed things up. They all left. Some went, some became consultants because some went with other companies. This person joined us. One of those people was a consulting, became a consulting engineer. His uh, uh, hobby was archaeology. He went to Yemen because Yemen had just opened up after 500 years of not allowing foreigners to come into the country. Wow. Um, and to uh, he spent a half day out of a week going over to the mineral uh, ministry of mines. They, Yemen had no oil, zero oil at the time. And he saw an aeromagnetic survey that had been flown for uh, purposes of mineral exploration. And Yemen did have minerals. The frankincense trail came through yeah. there. Anyway, he had an idea, and he um, came back to London and uh, tried to interest other people, and it could not. And he was a Syrian. The Syrian geophysicist met our person, Scott, geologist, um, for beer in a, in a awesome. pub in London. And the Syrian geophysicist sketched out on a napkin what he thought might be the case. Yeah. And uh, our guy... I thought that we had a huge respect for the geophysicist. He called the next day the person in Dallas he reported to, said this is the craziest idea that I've ever had, ever passed along. Yeah. Uh, the guy in Dallas walked down the hall to my office and said, right, this is the craziest idea I've ever passed along. But he, he went through the background. And my question was, this is a crazy idea. How much would it cost to find out if there's a substance? By international exploration standards, it was dirt cheap yeah. and for multiple reasons. So we went ahead and pursued it. Uh, it ended up being highly successful. And what, it, what happened was when the earth was pulling apart in geologic time, um, the, there were great pressures uh, between what is now Africa and the Middle East. Yeah. There were three zones of weakness. The first one to fail is now the Red Sea. The second one, which once the first one failed, the pressure was taken off of the other two. Right. But on the surface, it's a great rift valley in Africa. The, there was another one on the other side, on the Middle East side, but it was covered in sand. People couldn't see it. And uh, so that's the real story of what we did in Yemen was we discovered a basin. We didn't discover a field. Now, the basin had multiple fields in it and stuff like that. But so from that call, walking in your office to, to knowing it worked, how long? A um, years? Ten years? It, uh, from the time he walked into the office to when we drilled the well, mm -hmm. it was probably four years. Um, That's great. And, um, and there were probably five different steps we had to. Yeah. Uh, um, and then after we drilled the discovery well, it took three years to drill enough wells to know that 
we had something commercial and to build a pipeline from the desert over the mountains in so Yemen. So you built a pipeline? A pipeline down to the Red Sea. And we had to build a, uh, consider a huge, well, a, a pretty large refinery yes. in the desert. Yeah. And when we went in, um, they they didn't even have, Yemen was the poorest country in the, in the world at the time. And, uh, um, only had a few highways. They had to close down the highway for. So it's put a lot of people to work, right? It's changed it. Oh, it fundamentally changed it. Today, Yemen's a basket case, but it, and it's so sad because the 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 people of Yemen are basically good people. Uh, they are the people of Yemen are good people. They've had some bad government. Summer has returned, and with it comes our annual mid-year pricing offer. Now through September 30th, all new and upgraded 2023 Trek memberships are half price. This offer is perfect for recent college graduates just getting into the industry, current members who want to be even more involved with Trek, and former members ready to make their return to the organization. We've got some pretty big things planned for the rest of the year, including our members-only vote to determine the next iteration of the Dallas Catalyst Project. So go to recouncil.com backslash become dash trek dash member. That's recouncil.com backslash become dash trek dash member and build the city you've imagined. Now, let's conclude today's show with the best from our conversation with Fred Perpall. So good athlete, you're on the uh, Bahamas men's uh, Olympic team. How did that redirect your life? Like, because I, I uh, some of the quotes I read about where you said I found out real early basketball <laughs> yeah. wasn't going to be my profession. Yeah. So just point of clarification, I played on the 1994 Bahamian uh, national team for the Caricom Games. Okay. So um, you know, I think for me, so much of what my parents did to keep us busy. Uh, and out of a pretty tough neighborhood was church and sports. So, you know, um, we had kind of the traditional middle-class upbringing, except we lived in a very tough neighborhood. So every day I got to see what it felt like to be the poorest kid at my school Mm -hmm. and the most fortunate kid in my neighborhood. And the duality between having two parents in my home in a neighborhood where most people didn't having parents that you know would pay for us to go to really nice schools where most people you know couldn't and having you know three square meals and a really balanced household in a in a pretty tough impoverished neighborhood but then going to school with kids who were financially on a different stratosphere from us so i think i learned pretty quickly how to be balanced and uh, also not take for granted what we had but also recognizing that material gains were not going to be what really you know qualifies for a good life. So sports was kind of the main tool my parents used. And it's natural growing up when you grow to, you know, be six foot six at 15 and you're a pretty good basketball player and good enough to be the best in high school. And yeah, that you just think like, you know, sports is going to be your ticket. And uh, that first year uh, playing, uh, you know, as a walk on at UTA and then um, qualifying for the 
uh, national team where I could actually see real professional <laughs> athletes and guys who were on their way to being professional yeah. athletes. Yeah. Um, I always tell the story we played. I won't call the name. We played against a very famous player, and I was 18, and he was 18. And, you know, I think he had 32 points in the first half, and I was like, oh, that's, that's what an NBA player looks like. And so it, it allowed me to move on pretty quickly to say, you know, if I was going to have the life I wanted, that uh, I was going to be going professional in something other than sports. And uh, so that was a gift, you know, yeah. uh, to kind of be able to focus at UTA and really get into my books. And I always wanted to be an architect from I was 12 years old. Um, working on a construction site. Uh, my uncle was a mason, and my father, because I was a pretty big child, sent me to work for him. And I was out in the sun mixing mortar and you know putting up blocks and uprolled this nice burgundy jaguar with a really well-dressed gentleman. And he walked out and looked around and sort of gave everyone direction on the job site and jumped back in his car. In 10 minutes, he was gone. And I looked at that, and I said, Who, who's that? And they said, well, that's the architect. And I said, Oh, that's a much better job <laughs> than, <this. laughs> than mixing cement. Right. <laughs> and so, um, so you know, I, I've had just a good fortune, Bill, early in my life to know one. I wanted to be involved in the building business because I, as a creative, I was always interested in the built environment and buildings and what it takes to create them. And then two, I did not get distracted by pursuing a career as a athlete too long. Right. where it would have distracted me from the gains. And so, um, you know, I feel very fortunate to have had both experiences. Uh, the experience of, you know, trying and not necessarily being the most successful athlete and getting into a, a environment in college where I had great mentors and, um, you know, focus on learning. Don't, don't you think athletics, though, the discipline it takes to get to whatever no level you are helps you in life? Yeah, I mean. It was so it was very easy, right? Like right. if through sports, my whole life I had been learning to wake up early and right. to pack my bags the night before and to be disciplined enough to manage your time, to go from weightlifting, strength and conditioning uh, to class, from class to practice, from practice to homework and study sessions. So time management, discipline, hard work. Uh, a true meritocracy, like sports is a meritocracy. If that guy is kicking your tail, he's going to get more playing time. And the only way to catch him if he's ahead is to run harder and faster, right? And uh, to learn how to compete in school and then in my career was a wonderful gift. Yeah. But to compete in a way where you're still a good teammate, you know, yeah. to compete in a way where you're still being kind and good to people around you right. and to learn how to lose – and come back. Right. You know, all those things, you know, were the kind of gifts that I got from sports. And I, I always think, like, man, how fortunate was I to be born in a house of faith with parents that believed in physical fitness and athletics, but not at the expense of academics. Right. And so, you know, if anything, I look at my life, I've hit the parenting uh, lottery. You know, I, right. hit, I just hit the lottery with parents. And that's why the kids in our community that haven't hit that lottery we need to be more caring of and more kind of. Uh, because I think most of us who have been really successful, if we had to go back and sort of reverse engineer, we all are standing on shoulders and we stand under trees we didn't plant. Totally. And we actually had some good grace and some good fortune, mm -hmm. whether it was parents, the environment you were born into, the people around you. Yeah. And some folks in our community mm -hmm. don't have those good graces 
And we can now, at this time in our you know history as a city, do more for folks who have not been, uh, you know, winners of the lottery. Right. And uh, that's a wonderful opportunity. I think we all have. So, like, my dad was my best friend, and I looked up to my dad, and I knew day when when I was in fifth grade, and everybody was one guy was playing a cop or. You know, everybody was different roles. I was always a real estate guy. I didn't know what it meant, but I always knew what I wanted to do. So we've got yep. that in common. And then, you know, being a parent, something that's important to me about my kids is I want my kids to be driven. Yeah. I have a passion for something. And because, like, I, I always have all these kids getting out of college and they come talk to you. And you want, they're, they're chasing money instead of passion. Yeah. And that's the number one thing I always try to tell them. I go, you got to go find something that you really want to do and forget about the money. The yeah. money will come behind. Yeah. Yeah, because I think the, the, you know, people around you are attracted to your authenticity. They're attracted to the energy you bring. And it's hard to bring great energy on bad. things you don't love totally. if it's not real. Totally. They're going to eventually find out if it's not real. Every time. You know, when I started my career, we routinely would pull all-nighters as architects. Yeah. And it would be hard to do that if you didn't love what you were doing. Right. I never, ever did, like this is what I say to our young people today, I don't do what I do for money. Because I'm good at what I do, you know, money comes with it. Right. But I didn't want to be an architect to make money. I wanted to be an architect to make a difference in the built environment. Right. I wanted to be a builder because I know that actually how we live and where we live. And I saw firsthand, you know, the actually negative impact from living in underdeveloped communities. And I was always interested on in how you can cre create better communities through buildings. Yeah. So for me, it was always something that was interesting to me and something that I was, you know, generally in love with. And, and if you love it, you're going to attract people to your cause. If you love it, people are going to want to be around you. Sure. If you love it, you will get good at it. Right. And no one has to make you do it. And I always joke, you know, it's like, so like no one has ever had to chase me to well, do work. Right. right. And so I know when we look at people at Beck, we think about competency as a, you know, table stake. In other words, you have to be good at what you do. That's table stakes. But what really takes your career to the next level here is the love of what you're doing yeah, and the care and concern for the people around you. Totally. And that comes through because you're passionate. Well, I think if people, if you're people that aren't genuine or they're living what they think you want them to be, it always gets exposed. Yeah. It just happens all the time. Yeah. And it's, I always have empathy for those people because they're doing. They're not living their yeah. true life. Yeah. But, so, so you have a passion for architecture. So now you're leading a company. So you, I'm sure you are. You doing? You're you're not. You're you're leading the company. Yeah. So you're leaving a passion and creating another one. How did that transition work? Yeah, I mean, that's a good one. I mean, like one first. I still try to choose some pet projects where I can be so involved. So you still get to be involved. with design, awesome. uh, uh, you know, uh, and construction. I mean, look, I always wanted to be in the design and construction business. Although right. I'm trained as an architect. My uncle was a builder, right? So I always felt like what I loved about this business is, one, you could literally build people while you're building buildings. Cool. Like you could have an impact on the lives of people because in this business, 
We hire people who are high school educated, maybe some who are not even high school educated, and they can be trained as tradesmen and laborers and skilled uh, craftsmen. And we hire people with you know, advanced degrees. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of great work is to have a great life. Like we are not beasts of burdens. Like we didn't wake up to say the purpose of our life is work. (laughs) No, the purpose of our work is to build a great life. And so being the leader of a company allows you to really bring that energy, you know, to how you set up your company, who you decide to work with, who you decide to hire. You know, so I love the ecosystem um, of Beck and the leadership platform gives me a lot of, you know, sort of tools to have an impact on the lives of people. And, you know, if I really would have reverse engineer why I was so excited to get into the design business and then the construction business, it really is, you know, the fascination uh, and deep connection to people. And so for me, it's almost like I'm having my cake and eat it too. I get to be in the business and industry I love, but ultimately leadership is about people. And I get to spend a lot of time with interesting people and hopefully helping the people in our firm and outside of our firm uh, that we touch have slightly better lives. I think they need to know you care, right? Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, if, if they know you love them, even in tough times, they appreciate it and they'll follow, I yeah. think. Yeah. And people follow what you do, not what you say, right? So it doesn't matter if you say, boy, I put up on the walls, integrity is one of our values, yeah. caring is one of our values. People know how you make them feel. Totally. And people know uh, every day whether you live your life with integrity, not necessarily if you do your business with integrity, but do you live your life with integrity. So I always say to our kids, I want to be better in this house than I am out there in the public. I want you to have a better experience with me as a leader than my people at work have. I want to be better behind the curtain than in front of the curtain. Uh, and that's kind of a standard that I think we as leaders need to have for themselves. And I think, Bill, we're in a real inflection point in our economy, in our community. We have a string of thought today that is actually, and I see it through the eyes of my kids, and that, that thinking process that somehow you can get more by doing less. That you could get more out of your career and out of your life and out of your education while working less. And this pervasive thought that is happening in our pop culture today, first, I think it's a trend that was always happening, but then COVID accelerated it. And the, the notion, particularly driven on social media, that you can look into other people's lives and everything looks so easy, that there is a thought process out there today that somehow... I could achieve more in my life while giving less and doing less. And I think what I try to say to our folks here at Beck and to my kids and the people I love, the people that give the most always end up getting the most. The people that do the most get the most. And we have to be, I think, coming out of COVID, clear-eyed and, and full-throated about where true sustained success and accomplishment comes from. And it comes from sacrifice and the willingness to work hard and the willingness to take care of people around you. And these are things that everyone can do. Like you don't have to have the biggest IQ in the world. I don't think I'm that smart actually, but I think you have to have 
an impeccable work ethic, and you have to couple that with you know values, uh, morality, and concern for other people. And that's you know hopefully you know I think the takeaway I would have in my career, what made me a CEO at 36, 37 was the willingness to work harder than everyone else. Right. Now, I'm not saying I was the hardest worker, but but I worked as hard as everyone else was working. Right. And coupled with taking care of the people around you, people always know how you make them feel, right. irrespective of intention. And we have a, a country today where everyone wants to be judged by their intentions. President Bush said this. But they treat everyone else based on their actions. So in other words, so, I want you to excuse me for behaving poorly when I do, but I'm going to judge you harshly by the way you act. So true. And I think today we need to just be more realistic, particularly with our young people coming up. I didn't get here making excuses. Right. <laughs> I didn't get here doing half of what others were doing. We were willing to pay the price, and that's the culture we're trying to, to kind of reconstitute here at Beck. I do think it has shifted. Like, yeah. like I talk to my kids because they're both in college, they're sophomores in college, and I go, you got to stop trying to pass a course, and you need to focus on learning, Yeah. right? Because education, it, they they just care about getting the grade nope. and it, instead of learning, yeah. and it's crazy. Yeah. And you just watch it, and you're going... There, it's. I think we are totally misdirected. Yeah. And yeah. you know, one of the things I think that's important, at least for me in my faith, is I think if you, if you're public about your faith and your leadership in your company, it brings great responsibility yeah. for you to be real. Yes. Because a guy that speaks it but doesn't yeah. live it, because oh. words don't mean yeah. anything. Yeah. And, and that that's one of the things. Like when we get into inclusion, one of the things I don't want to talk about it. I yeah. want to do it. Oh. But, but it's trying to figure out a way for me as a white man yeah. that's never lived that yeah. on how I can actually help. Yeah. And I think I can, there's many ways I can help, but I'm always looking for a way to not talk about it, but yeah. to do it. Yeah. And I think it's really critical. Yeah. We need less talk and more act. Right? Totally. But I also will, will say this, because if there's a young person listening in, maybe there's a 25-year-old who just got into the real estate business. I have a lot of friends whose kids are recent college graduates that just are getting into our industry. And I, I don't want to misconstrue what I'm saying because I'm not down on the young generation. No, I'm not down on my kids' generation or the millennials coming behind. In fact, I think that generation is so much more equipped and skilled than even my generation was coming into the, the workplace. I think they have better technology skills. They've seen more of the world virtually and in person. And they have, you know, a comfort and ease with how they communicate and how they actually can be productive that was not as natural to us. So if they can harness all of the good yeah. of, of the time they was raised in and what they have gathered from that time while coupling it with the willingness to defer gratification and, and sacrifice, then they're going to be the most extraordinary American generation we've ever had. But if they allow themselves to think that somehow I can go at home and work half as much as I as I used to work, and I could be disengaged with the people I work with while hoping to have more engagement in the long run. It just doesn't work. People, uh, we are, uh, you know, sort of social beings. Totally. You you need to look me in the eye, Bill, when I make that commitment to you. A handshake is always better than a contract, and these are things that we just cannot duplicate 
without being with each other and spending time together. Mm-hmm. And, and so for me, when asked about the future of this country, I am bullish. Uh, but I also feel like we need to be realistic about what it t- took to get to this point and what every generation before us paid in terms of their price to the generations coming behind us. And so I'm very optimistic about the generations that are coming. I think they will solve a lot of these issues around inclusion. I see my kids living an inclusive life, not talking about one. When I come home on Fridays, my house looks like the united colors of Benetton. There are kids of every ethnicity. There are white kids on my couch. There are Asian kids on my couch. (laughs) There are kids that are biracial that I don't even know the makeup and I, and I don't have the guts to ask my kids because they don't even think about that. Right, which so, is awesome. So today we're at a place where the world needs much more demonstration, right? Yeah. Than it needs discussion. Yeah. The, the, the world doesn't need more instruction. It needs demonstration. It needs us to demonstrate what an inclusive life looks like. And every now and again, I get like a little you know, back chatter from my kids or close friends. And they say, you know, Fred, people think you've been successful. Uh, you know, they, they, the reason for your success is, you know, you're, you're an African-American at the right time. And, you know, I always find that to be like one of the That's most crazy. comical things when That's people crazy. say, well, you know, he's a CEO back, but, you know, they, you know, they needed a black guy. And I said, I said well, you know, right. there, there are 32 million, you know, African-Americans in the United States. So even if they needed one, let's just assume I beat out 32 million of them. Uh, but, but uh, you know, you cannot hold these kinds of positions for superficial reasons. There's no way. Peter Beck, who's one of my great mentors and, and also great friends, always has, you know, the best quote on this. He said, you know, the fact that Fred is black, we like, and, uh, but we didn't choose him for any position because he's black. There are too many families <laughs> that depend on this company. Right for their livelihood to make such a superficial choice. You have and, to you have to make decisions yeah. on based on merit. Yeah. And and it, it, it listen, I, I think um it's wrong to give someone a job not based on merit. I yeah. think opportunity has yeah. to be for all yeah. and it has to be equal. But it but 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 positions have to be given based on merit. Absolutely. So there, there's no way Beck would give it to anybody other than based on merit. Yeah. So there's a duality in my thinking that I've come around to on this. And I think it's, you know, on the matter of inclusion is like there's one time in our firm's journey that we ought to be radical and insisting on diversity. And I'm going to use the word diversity yeah. as different from inclusion. And that's at the very beginning. When we bring a class of interns in for the summer or we bring a class of new hires in, I insist that those classes are diverse. We have people of color. We have black people. We have Hispanic. We have women. We have, and and it can't mean let's push down the white guys. We have a good proportion of white guys too. We have a diverse class at the beginning. And I think we have to hold ourselves accountable to that in organizations like this, that our recruiters and the people responsible for working for us are fishing in a broad pond so that they can bring in a class that is representative of the country we live in. Right. And after that, it's all meritocracy. Totally. But if we start with diversity at the beginning, we'll end up with diversity at the end. Right. If we are inclusive. Right. So if we have a culture of literally living our lives with each other, 
and connecting fully with each other, and we have diverse groups at the beginning, then we'll have diverse throughout. And so I believe it is not responsible as a leader to select people for opportunities based on gender and race. It's crazy. It is not fair and it's not responsible. But I also believe at the very beginning, you have to open up opportunities so that everyone has a chance <laughs> to be included and to be successful. And so I think that's a very nuanced answer, but it's, it's a very, you know, for us at Beck, it's been a very clear answer. We start with diversity at the beginning. We live very inclusively. And we know when we look across our firm, we will have a diverse firm because we were intentional about it at the very beginning. So outside of Beck, how do you think we're doing? You know, I think there, you know, <laughs> look, um, if I look at the long arc of time relative to American inclusion, I would say we are as good as we've ever been. I agree with that. And I would also say Americans, all Americans need to be more kind to themselves about how far we've come and how quickly we've come this far. In 1960, we were still living Jim Crow, you know, rules. Sure. That's 60 years ago. Right. Okay? So the problems that we face in America relative to race and equality are American problems. They're not black problems and they're not white problems. No, I agree. In fact, I would argue to you that while this country is being harsh to black people, it's also had a underlying harshness to white people in the guilt and the lack of fidelity that is implicit on the entire society. Because when we look out there, we can see the inequity in our community. Sure. And we know there is no white friend of mine that would trade growing up in North Dallas to growing up in South Dallas. There is no white friend of mine that would say, you know what, I'd rather come back as a African-American. And, and we know instinctually that the country has been very tough through its history yeah. on our African-American population. But I would also say it would, be, it would be not sincere to not point out the progress we are making. And so because these are American problems, it's going to take all Americans to lean into these problems. And we can't let the pop culture and the politicians split us up, right? right? Because pop culture has its own objectives. Politics has its own objectives. We need to be in environments. Look, I, I am a conservative American, okay? So, right. I, I believe in fiscal conservatism as a tool for life. It's, it's how I've built a life for my family, spend spend less than you make. But being you know, a conservative fiscally doesn't mean I can't be caring. Uh, because I, I happen to believe in a life of, you know, sort of, you know, austerity in certain regards doesn't mean I can't be generous. In fact, I would say many of my conservative friends are the most generous and philanthropic people in this city. But I think we have to also be sincere that it is beneficial to Americans to learn more about these racial problems so that we can't have the, you know, sort of if you don't address the root cause of the issue, then it leads to false thinking that somehow those people there just aren't doing enough. And if we don't address, you know, the structural systems that have 
put that group of Americans in that situation, then it's going to be hard to come up with the right solutions. Right. I used to have this basketball coach, and he he was not a great coach, and he just, you know, every solution was, hey, just try harder. Or, hey, make shots. You know, and it's like, hey, you think I'm out here not trying to make shots? Right. Exactly. Sometimes I think when it comes to racial um, equality and progress, we sound like my basketball coach. Try harder. Make more shots. Right. As if the people uh, who are trapped in these systemic issues are not trying harder and are not wanting to make shots. So we have to go back to the root cause of the issue. And the root cause of the issue stems from slavery and segregation, where we absolutely did not have equality. Right. And this is not going to be undone in five generations. I just told you 60 years ago, you know, 70 years ago, it would be insincere of anyone to think that 60 years ago I could be the CEO of Beck. Yeah, there's no way. 60 years ago, I could be a member of Dallas Country Club. Right. 60 years ago, I could be president-elect of the USJ. It would be insincere to say that could have happened 60 years ago. So just in one lifetime, we've made a leap forward. Right. But we're not going to undo all of the systemic and psychological scarring in one generation. So we have to be intentional about absolutely indicating to all groups of people that there are room for them at tables like this. Right. That we absolutely want to include them in our economic success. And we have to actually find ways to create programs of training and opportunity to actually pull people into this success and to relieve them from a life of systemic underserved uh, communities and what they create. So like, I, I, as a white man, right? So I, I think... I think we've come a long way, but we've got a long way to go. Mm -hmm. So I do think that, that you can see progress. Yep. I do think there's some complacency from some a big percentage of people. Yep. But I also think there's a lot of people that don't really know what to do. Yep. They don't know. You know, I've never been a check writer. I mean, I, I believe in yep. giving money away. I yep. think if you have it, you should give it. And but but I'd rather be more involved yep. because I want to see it yep. and I want to know that, that it's, I'm, I'm finding a way to make a difference, yeah. you know, instead of just writing a check and counting on somebody else to do it. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people, at least for me, I am really working hard to try to figure out what my, how I can be a, a game changer or yeah. how, how I can make a difference. Yeah. That's awesome. I, you know, my advice to everyone in this regard is start small and don't be discouraged right. starting small. The issues are so complex, but then they're very simple too. The issues of opportunity are simple to solve. At Beck, we started a school of construction called the Beck School of Construction. We have one in inner city Fort Worth and one in inner city Dallas. If we can train 20 to 30 African-Americans on how to be involved in the construction business, to start little companies, to develop the skill set so that they may be hired by other companies, to get a little training so that they have a job. If every year we help 60 to 100 people who otherwise would not have that access, we're going to look back and find that one day we've helped thousands of people. Totally. The people who were my mentors in life were all white men that look like you, Bill, mm -hmm. and they were great to me, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, I have to feel like they didn't mentor me because they had some lofty idea to change America. Uh, they mentored me because they truly cared, and they knew that there were things that I could not have possibly known that I needed to know to be successful. 
Like if your parents live check to check, right? How, how could you ever understand the value of a 401k? I didn't even know what a 401k was, Bill. Totally. I didn't know how to dress professionally when I came to work. I came to work at Beck, I used to wear Tommy Bahama shirts and sandals. Someone had to pull me aside and say, hey, you need to go get some Brooke Brothers shirts and you need to get some slacks. You're really good at this job, but you, your appearance isn't right. Someone had to care enough to actually do those very basic things for me to shepherd me through my first two to three years of my career. Right. It would have been easy for them to dismiss me as unprofessional or not getting it, et cetera. Right. As if the very things that they may have learned around their kitchen table, my parents were not equipped with that information to teach me. Yeah. So we've got to have caring enough that if each person took one person, right? Right. That might be enough. Right. We don't need to look at the problem like how do we change it for every person. No, just start making small uh, progress. I think. Andy Stanley was my pastor in Atlanta. He had this quote I love. He said, do for one person that which you wish you could do for every person. But you can't do it for every person. Right. But you can do it for one person. Today we're at a no excuse point. Right. Every business leader uh, under the sound of our voice with control of resources in a company, could have one intern, could create one spot, mm -hmm. could mentor one person. Mm -hmm. If we change the life of one person, mm -hmm. we will eventually change the life of our entire community. And what I find, great. It, what I find the most valuable thing I do today, today I have about five mentees that are men of color, okay? One is Hispanic, five are black men. Mm -hmm. Of my five mentees, most of them have not had real functional relationships with their fathers. Right. Okay? Now, I'm not saying they don't have a father. I'm saying there's some scar tissue there. Totally. But, well, like, when you say you have a mentee, is this, is, is this an ongoing, long... This is an ongoing... Like a year or two-year relationship? This is a commitment. Good for you. This is a commitment to help them learn some things they need to learn. Read this book. Send me your notes. I'm going to call you on this. Hey, you know, I'm here to help you. These people, by and large, do not work for Beck. That's great. One of them does. Most of them don't. Right. Okay? I feel like the most valuable thing I can do in terms of American progress is to sow good seed into the life of these younger folks the way it was sown into me. Like Peter Beck literally changed my life. Yeah. But before he was changing my life, the other mentors I had at Beck were changing my life. So how do you find the mentees? Do they come to you? Well, I think it's an attraction thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, in, in, in one case, I had someone I really respect called me up and said, I'd Ask like you. you to take this young man. In another case, a person worked for Beck and had a terrible experience and left. Um, but was a young black man and we just kept in touch and that person became a young father and he didn't needed to know more about a lot of things. And right. we, now it's a phone conversation on a Saturday. I mean, again, it's some of the most enjoyable, you know, moments, uh, you know, for me, I don't think it's a mentorship program, by the way. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's like a structured thing. Right, right, right. I think it's, it's an attraction thing in that, you know, you're attracted, uh, to someone, I would say in all cases, these folks are really serious about being mentored. Mm -hmm. And that's, for me, probably the, the most important 
part that when you throw good seed on fertile ground, that it does bloom. And, um, you know, so, so for me, God did not bless me with sons. And I think I feel a special calling in my life to have some impact on the lives of young men, particularly young men who may have grown up at risk. Uh, you know, I lost a brother. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like the way I can re repay the universe for the same symptoms that took him uh, not recurring is to sow really good seed back into our communities uh, uh, and, and into the lives of young men. Uh, we need more of that today. So I would say to the listeners, everyone can be great in this regard. Totally. Because everyone can take one and everyone can serve. And you don't need to have, you know, a PhD to serve. You don't, you don't need to know Einstein's theory of relativity to mentor a kid. You don't even have to make your subjects and your verb agree to, to be honest and good to one person. And you could change the life of one person. This company did that for me. And because they did, I would like to say the knock-on effect is all the lives that I might be able to sow back into. And so I'm sure uh, for us, we need to make the issue of inclusion more simple. And the simplicity is take one person and teach them. You know, as leaders, I think it's so important for us to pour into young people. Like when I came to Dallas, I came to Dallas at 28 and I didn't know anybody. And I didn't know, I didn't know the city. I didn't know where to go. And, you know, nobody would hire me. And, and I always told myself if I ever got into a position to where I could help, I would help. Now I come from a, I'm a, a recovering alcoholic. So I've been sober like 38 years now. So a lot of Thanks my giving back yeah. has been Owning it, so being yeah. open about it, yeah. because people that have those issues then come to you. Being open about my faith, because yeah. people that when they're in trouble, they come because yeah. they know you're a, you're a resource. Yeah. So I, I think thirty percent of my life is pouring into young people. Awesome. Because I think too many of us will meet with them, but pass them on. Yeah. But don't get involved. Yeah. And, they, and you can't get involved with all of them. No. But. It doesn't matter what color they are. They all need direction because they're yeah. coming from different backgrounds and lives that maybe their parents don't have the tools to yeah. pour into them yeah. or give them the guidance yeah. to get make a better life. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's such a good point. What you're doing with this podcast is an example. Giving of people access to somebody like you. It's so important because they can see a guy that came from nothing and yeah. has turned into something. Yeah. But you're grateful and you're yeah. and you're humble and yeah. you're pouring back into other people. Yeah. Because so many people in life, you look at people on TV and we don't have to name them, but you they're all takers and no. it's all ego and it's all look at me. Yeah. And I, I just think an ego is the worst thing in the world for anybody. I yeah. just run from them. Yeah. Drives well, I, me crazy. I, I think um because we're all lucky. <laughs> You know, I, I, I can't tell you how many lotteries I've hit in life. I mean, the, <laughs> I uh, first I start off with the parenting lottery, but then I also hit the company lottery. I mean, yeah. the Beck family has always had a culture of service and caring. And to be able to be proximate to this culture for my entire career has yeah. been a gift. Um, it would be insincere, you know, for me and like, like humility to know that a life like this, I could not have created for my for myself. Yeah. Like if I had woke up at 18 and said, I'm gonna create this life, I could not have done that. Right. You know, 
other people, you know, sort of helped you get to where you're at. For sure. And this is why you need to recognize, uh, you know, uh, that you have what you have because of others. Totally. And we're dependent on others. And that's why we need to be uh, recommitting to serving others. Mm-hmm. And the folks that get that, I think, are the ones that are going to build the most meaningful life. Look, we're at a place right now, you and I, but also most people who are Trek members. Yeah. Most people who work at companies like Beck and HKS and all of these wonderful Dallas real estate involved companies, most of us have hit the lottery. We have. We live, I don't care where you're at as an employee back, we live better than most people on earth ever have and ever will. Totally. And the humility to know that who what much was given to, much is required from, I think it's something for me because I watch my friends in my neighborhood not make it out of the neighborhood. Yeah. I'm talking about not 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 get a job, like not get to 25, right. you know? And so for me, you know, I've tried to take that survivor's guilt and turn it into something positive by investing back into the lives of young people who are, who were like my friends. Some of my buddies that didn't make it out, including my brother, they were much more talented than I was. They, they, they were much more, you know, sort of, you know, brain power and leadership and so on and so forth. They just had the wrong people around them. Right. And so if we can be a force for good uh, in the lives of young people, first, never underestimate the power and the dignity of work. You know, I've got some young people that work at Beck right now. We're training them to be safety uh, coordinators and field engineers and and uh, you know, just skilled laborers. You know, I've got a nephew, my brother's son, who just got his commercial uh, truck driving license, his CBL, and he's driving a you know eighteen wheeler. Awesome. Uh, but I I watch you know an at risk kid become a man because of the responsibility that comes with work. Right. And so people who are not included in our economic success it's going to be hard for them to be included and feel included in our community. And uh, I think these are things that we in this industry, when we talk about diversity in our suppliers and diversity in who we hire and diversity on our job sites, it's the recognition and the humility to know that today, if we want to be authentic about what Dallas can be, we can no longer be comfortable with two Dallases, one in which we all thrive and have access to everything uh, commercially, and one where the people in that southern community don't have access to these opportunities, don't get the good jobs, don't ever get considered and hired. And yes, there might be a skills gap, but we have the tools to close that skills gap. And so for us, it's not necessarily something that someone is making us do. It is something, it's the way we want to live our life here at Beck. And I don't want to do it because the city put a quota on it. I want to do it because our lives actually get better when we live life this way. That's all for today's show. 
I hope you enjoyed the very best from our Legends of Commercial Real Estate episodes with Ross Perot Jr., Ray Hunt, and Fred Perpal. These were an absolute blast to record. They always are. And I'm grateful to our guests for giving us a bit of their time to sit down with Bill Cauley for these amazing conversations. I'd also like to thank the Dallas Business Journal for sponsoring the series. And remember, you can listen to these episodes in their entirety wherever you download podcasts or watch them over on our YouTube channel. So go check those out. Links are in the show notes. A few other parting notes as we wrap up today's show. Make sure you get your tickets for our August 24th Market Matters event on the future of the lending environment. Check out our 2023 Trek membership survey for your chance to win a ticket to this year's Fight Night or a 2024 Trek membership. We've linked to that in the show notes as well. And finally, take advantage of our mid-year pricing offer and either join Trek or upgrade your 2023 membership for half the price. Go to recouncil.com backslash become dash Trek dash member. That's recouncil.com backslash become dash Trek dash member to peruse our member benefits and find the right membership for you. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>